Welcome to the Waitressing to Wealth podcast, the podcast to gain actionable tips, learn how to build your wealth, and gain inspiration from real and relatable guests on how they've built theirs. I'm your host, Jolene Stone, a money coach. I started my journey out waitressing and $200,000 in debt. I was able to build my wealth and become debt-free in just three years. Your journey to wealth starts now. Welcome, Jen. Hello. (laughs) If you could give the audience a little bit of background on you for anyone who doesn't know, uh, just a little intro. How are you doing though? I'm good. Um, So I'm Jen. I am originally from Toronto, um, but I have been a nomad for the better part of the last 12 years. living in different countries, living in different places across Canada, um, working remotely, working in other countries, um, doing all sorts of all sorts of things, all sorts of adventures. Um, but I'm now currently calling Toronto home um, and have been since just before the pandemic. Um, but I am actually moving again because that's the kind of person I am. <laughs> um, so I'll be moving across Canada again um, at the end of the summer. Um, to somewhere with more nature (laughs) yay that's so exciting are you just pumped I'm so excited I can't wait we're my partner and I are moving to Squamish um which is like if you know anything about it it's a pretty awesome place it's super beautiful a really good balance of uh, like a decent sized community uh, but access to like mountain biking hiking um the ocean skiing everything so all all the things yeah that's amazing (laughs) I'm so excited for you that just Mm -hmm. sounds so good I've heard of Squamish and like I've seen pictures of how beautiful it is so it's a pretty cool little town yeah yeah (laughs) Mm -hmm. so I know that you've been over 50 countries traveling Mm -hmm. all over the world being a digital nomad no citizen of the world and I would love to hear about the best parts for you that is a great question. I get asked this question a lot. I get asked a lot what my favorite countries were, which is like an impossible question to answer when you've been to 50 countries. Cause mm-hmm. um, I've gone from, you know, places that I never thought I would ever go to like Uruguay and fell in love. Um, I went to places that I knew I would love like India, um, you know, Europe, Africa, Asia, like they're just so different but I was very, very lucky to do that much traveling in my twenties. And I look back at it now as we're sitting in a pandemic and nobody's traveling and all these people are going, Oh my God, I wish I had done that. I wish I had done that. And I get to sit and say that I did. I feel a little bit like a dick when I'm like, Oh yeah, I went to 50 countries in my twenties. But the biggest things I think I learned, um, and the things that shaped me the most were the ability to kind of show up in any situation and feel like I could handle it. Feel like I could meet people when I was traveling alone, feel like I could navigate foreign bus systems, feeling like I could kind of like take control of my life, which is something that I've realized now that I have no control was like such a gift to be able to have when traveling. But yeah, I don't know. I I'm a writer. I love writing. So it was like endless inspiration to be on the road and just kind of like the best backdrop to discover yourself, discover um, things that you love, things that you don't love, um, meet a whole bunch of people from all over the world and almost get to like try on different versions of yourself to see 
what fits and what feels really good. And then you can come home and take those pieces of that person and continue to like live more and more like yourself every day. Oh, I love that. (laughs) I love that you kind of brought up like confidence in yourself. Like Mm -hmm. you've gained this confidence of to do what you want, figure out what you want, go in a path and a direction that you want to just from mm-hmm. all of those different experiences so that's yeah. so cool I'm like yeah, like my very first trip I was 19 and I moved to West Africa with one of my like childhood best friends and like we were living with a local family we were working in an orphanage like we were so far removed from anything that was familiar we were like just finished our first year of university and it was like a crash course in navigating the real world and navigating people in different living circumstances and recognizing your own privilege and recognizing how much we've been given just by being born in the country we're born in and it just completely shifts your perspective so I came back to my second year of university being like I've seen what it's like out there I know what's beyond these like really confined walls of our very expensive university and to have that perspective um, was just huge from such a young age yeah that's incredible so on the flip side of that regarding your travel and going to all these different places if there's one thing that you're like maybe the worst thing or the thing that you're like no thank you (laughs) I know (laughs) I'm bringing this up (laughs) I, I was on Instagram stories this morning and I was scrolling through and someone got stung by a scorpion and I know that's happened to you so would you say like that's one of the worst things or would you consider maybe missing family or not being in a familiar place there's definitely a few layers to it so missing family 100%. I feel like I missed out on a lot of big like family milestones. So my brother had a baby when I was living away from Toronto and then I I got to meet him for 10 days and then I moved away for a year. So I missed like the first year of my nephew's life. Um so I missed a lot of like the big milestones both in family and friends life. Um and that's really hard. Uh you feel really kind of detached and isolated from that and you miss it a lot you miss a lot of things and that's really hard then there's the like illnesses and things that have happened that like no thing like this shouldn't happen to people like I got stung by a scorpion three times in the hand in Nicaragua I got dengue fever in Costa Rica on a yoga retreat like I got a parasite when I was in Africa I just the weirdest things. Um, I've been robbed before. I've had just awful travel romances that like just sent me sideways for like months on end. Um, all these sorts of things that like when they happen at home, it's one thing because you have the support and the familiarity. But when it happens when you're on the road, it's you realize you, you only have yourself to depend on. Mm-hmm. And the value of your health becomes so much higher because you don't know the medical system you're going into. You don't know what access you have. Um, Everything costs money. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, I can only imagine. (laughs) Yeah. Just the different places and how fortunate we are to live in Canada Mm -hmm. to just Mm -hmm. go into emergency and not have to worry about a thing. It's just such a luxury. Telehealth. Like I use telehealth for the first time a couple weeks ago yeah like to be able to call and speak to a nurse and get an answer straight away on 
you know, how you yeah. should be handling a situation is yeah. like such a privilege. Yeah. <laughs> and I awesome. think <laughs> we really take it for granted. I watched this video about how much debt the U.S. citizens are in because they went oh, to yeah. emerge for like one day or they had this one mm-hmm. condition and it's just so it's crazy. So not good. So, so jumping off of that, do you believe your traveling has helped shape how you view money in certain situations or just in general? Mm-hmm. Um, I think definitely my travels have affected my relationship with my money hugely. Um, when I was a teenager, I was very lucky to come into an inheritance. Um my mom's oldest sister, her partner was very, very wealthy. Um, and when he passed away, she decided to give all of her nieces and nephews their inheritance early um, so that sh- she could see what we would do with the money. So most of my cousins and stuff, you know, had mortgages and families and all of this. So they used that money for really practical things. But being 16, I was like, oh my gosh, I have all this money. What can I do? Oh my God, I want to travel. I want to see the world. I want to like have all these experiences. So that money gave me the ability to, I invested it and I traveled off of the money that I earned for quite a while. And then I spent the money. That I had. <laughs> um, so I had a huge leg up on a lot of people when it comes to traveling because I had this money. So I never learned from an early age what it meant to really like focus on saving and focus on building those really good habits so that I could do these things. So it wasn't until I reached my late twenties, I started going crazy on my credit cards. I was running out of money. I really hadn't learned how to save properly and how to like manage my debt that it just like, it got out of control. Like I ended up racking up $8,000 in debt and was like, had no income. And I was like, Oh my God. And I just, created a story for myself that I just sucked at managing money. Like I was just terrible at it. And I had the evidence in front of me. I had this debt that I couldn't get ahead of because my repayments were more than I could pay off and um, all this. And it's been several years of really working at it and really like intentionally trying to change my relationship and like understand my relationship with my money to try and get out of that. And it's so, it's such a contrast when I think of all the amazing things that travel allowed me to do. And then this one big, fat, juicy, hard lesson, I just hated learning in the process. <laughs> oh, I love that. And I think that a lot of people can relate to that situation where they directly see that evidence that, oh, I'm bad at money. And then the story keeps continuing and continuing. So yeah. I love that you brought that up. Just the fact that the evidence is there circumstantially too Mm -hmm. like some people just have to have debt like they don't have that luxury of money in any sense like you're growing Mm -hmm. up or not given any money so yeah yeah well and and like my parents my mom's comes from a Scottish background and so like growing up I had this woman who was always like oh like we only shop the discount racks we like everything needs to be a deal and like we're gonna get the best deal that we possibly can so I grew up with this mindset of like money is like meant to be like held on to and like only spend money if it's a good deal and don't like you know buy something just for the sake of it and all of this and then my dad is the other side of like, he's very much like treat yourself. Like <laughs> we're going to go and buy like really nice food from like premium snacks from Whole Foods and get like the nice chips and like the good <laughs> chocolate and all this. 
And so this like polarizing effect of like growing up in a household with two kind of opposing sides and never really learning those good habits. Then when I was like launched on my own, it was just like, I didn't, I didn't have an example in my life to show me how to do it well. And then I had the continuing narrative of my mom being like, you need to get out of your debt. You can't be in debt. Debt is terrible. Like how you like, you're so irresponsible for like running up all this money and all this. And I'm like, Oh my God, but like, how do I get out of it? I don't know how to get out. Like nobody's shown me. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And I think that's a a trap that a lot of people fall into. Like we don't get these lessons in our teens. Like my partner is the same. He's working through his debt right now. And like, he never had a role model when he was younger and never had anyone to teach him about credit cards and teach him how to like use that money wisely and to your advantage to help build credit and not end up underneath of it 10 years down the road. Yeah, exactly. I think too, it's interesting that you had this like polarizing experience, even Mm -hmm. with your parents, but also with your money as well. So like a polarizing, Mm -hmm. I can do whatever I want because I have Mm -hmm. so much luxury of this inheritance. And then the opposite of that, like, uh oh, now, now what do I do? And then like, so I'm so glad that you have figured it out and learned from those things. Mm-hmm. Do you think that millennials like yourself are valuing experiences over having things or have your views changed since being in the like one place for the year and a half? Like a lot of us have <laughs> had to mm-hmm. reevaluate things. That is a great question. And I think you, you summed it up really well. I think there is a huge part of our generation that really values experience and values the ability to create memories and create stories and create these like, you know, milestones on your path with the different backgrounds of our world, whether it's like, I always say, like I've worked in hospitality for years and hospitality provides the background for people's lives. Like people go to a bar for the, you know, the energy and the vibe and the um, environment that you're in, like, that's what you're paying for. You're paying this premium to be in a space to create a memory. And when all of that was taken away, the only thing we had was what was in our home, what we were wearing, the things that we could tangibly hold. And I saw in myself, like this huge swing towards being super materialistic, which has never really been what I've been about. Like I would save all my money to go and do things and to go places. But as soon as that was taken away, I was like feeling so anxious. And so like, oh my God, like I I need to feel something. Like I can't feel anything. I can't go to like a speakeasy and have a really nice cocktail and like feel like I'm in another place. All I have is my, you know, apartment in downtown Toronto and nothing but time because I was unemployed. (laughs) Um, And so I'm like, yeah, so it's definitely been a swing and I think coming out of the pandemic it's going to be really interesting to see how we start to place value on things again Mm -hmm. because I think there's this desperation and this like desire to get back out and doing the things that we did before and and you can kind of understand how the roaring 20s followed the Spanish flu like people just want to go and do things and buy things and like get out there and I think it's going to be really fun and super interesting to see how things kind of unfold over the next few years as we start to come out of the pandemic and re-enter the world and I hope that people go back to placing a lot of value on experiences and connection and memory and things happening in the real world and 
less time on a screen and on Netflix and in our home and um, spending money on collecting things and rather spending money on seeing things and doing things. Yeah, I think too, a lot of people have this, like when they're in the pandemic, but in general as well, but that mm-hmm. little rush of dopamine when you order something oh, yeah. on Amazon and then it's like, oh, a gift for me has <laughs> arrived yeah. at my door. So it's very interesting that you talk about that and like, because you had taken away, and I'm sure everyone can relate to this, but mm-hmm. taken away those experiences and mm-hmm. you wanted like something to fulfill a little part of like this, I want to feel something. Yeah. <laughs> so you yeah. talked a little bit about um, social media. Uh, mm-hmm. I know that you took a social media detox lately. Mm-hmm. Do you think that has affected you and like how you value experiences by just taking away that one aspect of showing your life on social media or do you think it's like I don't know just put a different perspective on it I know you're like you extended your social media detox (laughs) a little (laughs) for a little bit so can you talk on that yeah I mean I so I lost my job in December so I've been I was unemployed through the whole winter and my roommate was working and my boyfriend was working. And so I spent so much time at home alone, scrolling on my phone with Netflix in the background, just like melting my brain and bless my boyfriend, because we are very similar people and we need nature. And he recognizes it before I even do when I've been inside for too long. So he would be like, okay, like once or twice a week, we would go on a hike in the middle of winter in Ontario, like (laughs) in the snow, we were like, we are going to go for a hike. I don't care that it's minus 20. Like we are going to go for a 10 kilometer walk and like all this. And it was in those moments that I felt the best. I felt like myself. I felt like I was doing something that I loved. And then I would go back to social media and I would start to feel shit about myself again. I was feeling, I had just horrible anxiety that I'd never experienced before in my life. I was feeling, getting, having all of these mental health things come up. And so I started kind of taking things out of my life, trying to figure out how to like change that. So I stopped smoking weed. I stopped drinking alcohol and I found a little bit of relief, but there was always this kind of tether to my phone and to what other people are doing that just like, it was like, I needed it. It was like more addictive than anything else in my life. And so, yeah. So when we found out that everything was going to be reopening and I was going back to work, I was like, okay, this is a perfect time to take a two week break enjoy the nice weather while we have it enjoy the fact that I'm not working get outside you know go and go to the lake go swimming go have barbecues like do the things that I don't get to do as much of when I'm working um and so yeah so I logged out of all my social media I kept the apps on my phone but I just logged out of everything and in that first hour that I had taken it off I opened Instagram seven times that is how like how much of a reflex it was, was for me, like, it was shocking. Like to see that happen in the first hour, I was like, wow, I didn't even realize how, like how much of a routine it was for me to just like open and open it and then waste 20 minutes. And so I started to find that in the moments that I was like sitting there being like, okay, what do I want to do next with my day? I was able to like make decisions so much faster. I was able to like actually hear what I wanted to do. Like, oh, I want to sit outside and read or, oh, I really want to watch Brooklyn Nine-Nine. And I would actually watch the show that I put on because I wasn't on my phone. Instead of having would, double screens. <laughs> I was like, 
I'm watching these shows and I'm like, oh my God, I don't think I've ever watched one of these shows completely focused. And I was like, okay, now I'm actually enjoying the show that I'm watching and I'm actually getting out of it what I came here to get out of it. Like it was just, it was great. And so, yeah, so I continued, I think I ended up doing almost four weeks of kind of being logged out. And then I like secretly logged back in. You were the first person who noticed that I'd logged back in. (laughs) Well, I take um, a social media detox on Sundays and it is absolutely so helpful in my week, in my focus, in like Mm. everything. And I, I can just see such a change. And on Mondays I'm like, oh, I don't think I really want to go on too early. So Mm. when I saw you were on, I really wanted to know how it affected you for one and like how amazing it was. Cause I know just, I was like ready to get rid of social media. I was like, I am done with the online world. Like I'm going to become one of those people that doesn't have social media, which for somebody who was like, trying to well I made a career with Instagram for quite a while yeah like for me to have that like mindset shift it like shocked me I was like god like who is this person (laughs) right it's so amazing that you do it once a week like I I think I'm probably going to steal that idea and start doing that because I notice, like on my days off when I just like leave my phone in my bag when we go to the beach and I don't touch it like it just is so liberating Mm -hmm. but in the same time in the same breath like the way that they have these apps set up your whole life becomes tied to it people most of my conversations happen in dms like that's how I make plans with my boyfriend to hang out is on instagram we don't text each other yeah so it's like when I do that I have to like notify all these people that if they want to talk to me I'm not there and it's just such a hard like relationship to create a boundary with when you have like so much of it entrenched in in yeah, one another exactly mm-hmm. uh I think it's interesting that you talk about like <laughs> I have to notify all these people yeah. when it's something that we're so used to like it's it's mm. so just it's a reality of like the times mm-hmm. like oh I'm gonna message this person on snapchat I'm not gonna text them or yeah. I'm gonna send them a dm on instagram and it's interesting just to like see the people around you change too because I I have a friend who's like oh sorry I messaged you and then I forgot it's Sunday today so I'm texting you now (laughs) yeah it's so funny Um, so we found that people like started to like know that that's the day you're not on and they will like specifically message you another way yes exactly Mm. or or they'll just wait (laughs) it'll just be like oh sorry it was Sunday I wasn't on social media yesterday for some people who don't know so yeah, but well, it's I mean, part of so that helpful. is too, right? It's the like the constant access to us. Yeah. Like that is probably the biggest thing is people have constant access to you and have the like unwritten rule that you have to respond straight away because yeah. people see that you've seen their DMs. They've yes. seen that you've seen their messages. They see, they know that you're on there. You can see the little green light that you're on Instagram. Yeah. And so there's this like expectation of immediate response. And like, mm-hmm. that is so anxiety inducing, like this idea that people have to have access to you all the time. Yeah. And so that was the biggest thing, like not people not having access to me. Like my mom, when she found out I was taking, taking a social media break was like, how am I going to know what you're up to? Like, <laughs> well, you can text me or we can hang out and I can or tell call you what me. I'm doing. Like, <laughs> yeah. I'm like, all right, creep, like just <laughs> on there seeing what I'm doing all day. Like this idea that people have to, you know, like, because I've set that precedent, I gave mm-hmm. people access to my life for so long that like, yeah, 
now I'm like, oh no, I don't, I don't want to tell you what I'm doing. Yeah. And interesting too, like, because you traveled for so long that maybe Mm -hmm. your mom and your friends are really like paying attention to be like, oh, where is Jen today? Or like, what is she up to? Like, it was just something that was so normalized. Right. Mm -hmm. So Yes, I love that. And I that. take pride in doing really pretty stories so people like know that I'll make <laughs> And I like, yeah, sad, like just set myself up for failure in that <laughs> sense. And I like, right. I think people too are shifting. I follow this girl on Instagram and she's ta- she always talks about trends and she's talking about how people are shifting off of social media, just, just like yourself mm-hmm. and going to more events and going to more things because we've lacked that so much in the past year and a half. So, oh, totally so interesting yeah I think like I've oh I've had a problem with influencers for a couple years (laughs) (laughs) if you go back through my Instagram I actually wrote a poem about wanting to dance on the graves of influencers it was quite a moment that I had a couple years ago um just this perpetual content machine and I am sick of it like I I just see so many people you know building online businesses, which is amazing. I think it's incredible to create a job for yourself and to create an area of expertise and grow this thing. But there's this whole other side of everyone who just wants to review products and like, look how beautiful my life is and all of this. And it's like Instagram started as a photo app as a way to kind of express yourself and share things. And now people are like, hunting for content yeah and it doesn't become natural or organic anymore and so I found myself being like I'm going to revert to what I used to do with Instagram which was I would take pictures of everything I love taking photos it's one of my favorite things it's why I love traveling I love photography so I just take photos of things throughout my day take photos of places that I am people that I'm with and then I'm trying to more intentionally just share moments not to create content not to but just to be like I went to the beach today and it was awesome and this is like six photos of my beach day yes I love and that like too. just like being overtly opposite to, to influencer culture <laughs> exactly yeah well, because they're trying to monetize everything right so oh, yeah. it's like a perpetual I need to get as many likes as possible so that yeah. I can sell this thing of whatever and it's just it's very toxic. And I Mm -hmm. like that people are realizing that for one, Mm -hmm. (laughs) calling it out for two, and then using their time or like, not even that, but their power, their purchasing power, and even just getting off the app. Because for sure, your views are are a place that like they monetize too. they're monetizing yourself. So yeah, they send you ads. They, oh my God, the number of Instagram ads I've been dated with this past year (laughs) let me tell you I like oh my god I almost bought a camera for $200 yesterday because I saw it on Instagram and now I'm like I need this camera it is so cool because they know you so well they know know me so well it's like a digital camera that shoots in like Lomo style like film style but it's digital and it's like low waste and made from recycled materials so I'm like oh my god everything that I stand for (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's oh so amazing yeah and they know that they know that about me and they target me and yeah <laughs> we are a victim of social media <laughs> exactly honestly we're like becoming I don't even think we realize how much we are becoming victims of society like you know we are just like following like salivating after the next cool restaurant and the next 
you know, mm-hmm. trendy thing and all of this. And like Aritzia, my God, they got me so good with their spring sale. Like all these things, they just like, they like know what you're after and they just like dangle it in front of you and entice you into spending all your money. And like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. it all comes down to like this purchasing power too and like your money mm. story and how comfortable you are and how much control you have mm-hmm. too so oh that's so yeah like there was a genius move by Aritzia to launch their like biggest sale of the year as things were reopening literally yeah. the week that things were reopening they were like clientele yeah. sale whatever clientele is the VIPs like everybody's a VIP if you shop at Aritzia like and you have an account and they're like oh you get this exclusive discount I'm like oh my god exclusive discount I need all new sweatsuits like it's like 30 degrees outside and I just need sweatsuits (laughs) the power of marketing oh Oh, honestly and I'm like oh I'm back at work I'm making money again I'm making tips again like yeah Uh they uh they they targeted us at the right time (laughs) for sure yeah. <laughs> so throughout your slow travel, can you tell us mm-hmm. a little bit about your experience in waitressing in different countries? I know different countries don't always tip, they pay a higher wage sometimes, or there's mm-hmm. just, just like a different culture surrounding how you serve and how restaurants are even laid out. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I've, I've worked in a few different countries. Um, I've worked in Nicaragua, in Peru, and in Australia um and obviously Canada and yeah there's a huge difference so when I was in Nicaragua and Peru we're both kind of like volunteer based jobs um so I worked in exchange for food and accommodation and a discount on drinks so it was the dream when you're a backpacker and you don't have a lot of money um I actually got the job in Nicaragua because I'd been robbed and had three hundred dollars to last me a month and I was like well I need to work or something because Otherwise, I'm not going to be able to get back to Canada. Um, And that one was like the easiest. Like we had five of us. We had like a day shift and a night shift. And you like were bartender, receptionist. And like your day shift, I would just like bartend in a bikini and like be like lying by the pool. And like if somebody needed something, they'd be like, hey, Jen, like, can I get a beer? (laughs) and then the, like the next step up from that in Peru was like, it was also a volunteer based job, but it was a huge hostel chain. So um, they're called Wild Rover. If you've been in Peru, you've probably heard of Wild Rover. It's like a, an infamous party hostel. And the bar was like a full functioning Irish pub. Like we would get hundreds of people coming in on the weekend. We'd have eight bartenders on at the same time. And it was yeah, it was a really intense experience, but we, again, made no money. We, like, made our, like, ability to live there for free um, and drink for free. <laughs> that went a long way. Um, but the biggest contrast was when I was in Australia. So I had been working in Whistler in Canada um, and earning incredible tips as a hostess. I wasn't even serving at that point. I was just a hostess, and I was bringing home $1,000 a week in tips. Um, which was insane for me. And then I went to Australia and I I got a job working in a Mexican restaurant in Sydney. And um, and they were like, okay, so your wage is $28 an hour. You make $32 an hour on weekends. For some reason, they pay you more on weekends. And I was like, great. Like, I just assumed that everybody worked weekends anyways, but you want to pay me more? Like, 
great. I'm in, I'm in. We had structured shifts. So if you were scheduled from six to 9 PM at 8:55, your manager would come and go transfer all your tables to this person. You're done, which is like unheard of in the service industry. You stay until all your tables are finished. You stay until all the guests are done. Like they're like, no, no, you're done at nine. You leave at nine. But the, it was interesting though, because I, because I came from Canada, I got the job over the phone. I didn't even go in for an interview, but the guy saw that I had experience in hospitality in Canada. So he was like, great, you're hired. I became a senior server two weeks after I started working there. So I was the only person who was getting like my Saturday night shift. I would come in, I would have two parties of 18 each. That would be my Saturday night. I would serve these people and then I would leave and it was because I was the only one who grew up in a culture of working for your ships. So my customer service was higher. My table maintenance was better. My ability to talk to and upsell guests was better. Um, we had all of these like internal incentive systems for like upselling bottled water. And I won it every month because like, I just, you just, do you want flat or sparkling? Like, and people are like, oh yeah, yeah. Sparkling water. Like, <laughs> and I'm like, it's so easy to sell bottled water. And then I was also became the, the one server that would get tips if a table was going to tip, which they do sometimes. And I remember this one table so well. They were a family of four. The daughter was probably like 11, 12 years old, like that preteen stage where she's a little bit awkward and whatever. And she ordered our pulled pork nachos for her main. And I had never been able to finish a, a nacho plate yet. They were so rich and like just so much stuff on it. She demolished it. Absolutely destroyed it. I came over and I was like, oh my God, like amazing. Great work. <laughs> like I can't do that. And her dad was like, do you want to tell her what you want? And I was like, oh, like, did you want something else? She's like, yeah, I would like another plate of nachos. And I was like, of course, like got her another plate of nachos. And she, I think she ended up eating two and a half plates of nachos. She was like, this like skinny, wiry little girl, but she just had like, she was just like, I'm still hungry. I need to eat more, like all this sort of stuff. And at the end of the meal, the dad goes, so um, you guys tip pool here, don't you? I was like, yeah, yeah, we always tip pool everything. He was like, great. I'm going to tip you to tip pool. So you can like, that'll be for everybody. But this tip, and he was holding, he had a $50 bill in his hand. He's like, this one is for you. You do not give this to anybody else. I want to see you put it in your pocket. This does not go in the tip pool. This is for you. I've tipped to the tip pool. This is for you. You have given us the best service we've ever had here. And you've made my daughter feel so comfortable and not judged. And like, she had such a good time and like all this. And I was just like, this is so cool. Like to have that experience, to be able to make an experience for somebody is one of my favorite parts of working in hospitality. And to know that I made a, a teenage girl feel like she didn't have to feel weird about the fact that she could put away two and a half plates of nachos, like, and not even think about it was awesome because like, there's so much stigma around that sort of stuff for girls. And, mm -hmm. um, it starts at that age and yeah, it was, it was a, it was a really like nice and memorable experience to kind of hold on to when I think of my time serving there. Um, because it just, it, tip when you get tipped there it feels more special than when you get tipped here when you get tipped yeah. here you're like it is expected that you tip me 15 mm percent -hmm. um because I get paid very little <laughs> yeah 
Yeah. So interesting. I we both have had the same experience working in Australia mm-hmm. waitressing. And I think that's so interesting. Like they hired me right on the spot. They were like, I was training people my second yeah. shift. Like it is just such a a difference in culture. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that's like the only thing there is to it. And yes, they're paid higher. It's totally a different experience. And when you go to places like half the time you're serving yourself like you go and yeah. order from the counter and then you get a buzzer and you go and get your own food like yeah. you don't have the same culture of service that we do exactly it's yeah. more takeout than literally anything yeah. than sitting down <laughs> yeah for a meal so yes mm-hmm. I hope you enjoyed this little introduction and part one with Jen in getting to know a little bit about her story traveling and waitressing abroad. In part two, we're going to be talking about shifts in hospitality throughout the pandemic, as well as her relationship to money and experience waitressing and how that has has had an effect on her money and her money story. So I hope you tune into that episode. It will be episode seven. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Waitressing to Wealth podcast. To support the show and show your gratitude, we would be so happy if you shared it with your friends and tagged us on Instagram at Jolene Stone. Subscribe so you never miss a valuable episode. 